0: You're listening to The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe Your escape to reality
1: Hello and welcome to The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe Today is Wednesday, December 4th, 2013 And this is your host, Stephen Novella Joining me this week are Bob Novella Hey everybody Rebecca Watson
2: Hello everyone
1: Jane Novella She's still dead And Evan Bernstein
3: Good evening, folks
4: I'm still celebrating I can tell Sylvia's no. passing?
1: Yes, I am. Proudly. But we're not supposed to be celebrating today. It's no. sad. Sad no. from beginning to end.
2: Well, speaking of people's passing.
3: Uh
1: huh. Today's
2: December 7th. On December 7th, 1970, the world lost Rube Goldberg, who died at the age of 87. Rube who Goldberg. Who died at
1: the hands of a very complicated machine.
2: <laughs> Easy joke there. I know
5: uh,
1: someone. Someone had to say it. <laughs> We're
2: just trying to warm
3: up here. Beat me to it.
2: <clears throat> yes, Rube Goldberg was best known as the cartoonist who, who would satirize an increasingly technological world using cartoons with people using very complex machines in order to solve otherwise simple tasks, and you see influences his his. The people he influenced everywhere. Um, there's a popular video by OK Go within the last couple mm-hmm. of years. Oh there's yeah, that's an
3: awesome video.
2: The new um, commercial for Goldie Blocks that was just traveling around the inner parts. Uh, and Wallace
1: of Wallace and Gromit.
2: Did he do Rube Gold? R- i Well, long he time was since he I'm was at the
1: nerdy scientist who came up with these elaborate Rube Goldberg machines inventions in order to accomplish something very simple, like eating breakfast or getting dressed.
2: All I remember is that he liked cheese. I'm not sure if we (laughs) ever did. There was the beginning of Back to the Future in in Doc's lab. Sure. And the popular game when I was a kid, Mousetrap.
3: Mousetrap. Oh, yeah.
2: I have no idea how that game was actually played. All we ever did was just set
5: up. Build it. (laughs) Yeah, me too. The trap. And Uh, you do it, like, a few times, and then that was it. You're done.
2: Yeah. Yeah, then we were done with it.
5: Do you guys know that Rube, uh, he won the Pulitzer Prize for political cartooning in 48? Wow, Pulitzer. Pretty impressive.
3: I spent a Saturday, oh, about a year ago, just looking at a couple of videos on YouTube. People in their own Rube Goldberg machines that they've come up with. I think I spent about four hours before I looked at the clock (laughs) and realized, oh my gosh, I've been watching these forever. They are mesmerizing.
2: Did you ever play The Incredible Machine? It was a computer game back in, I guess, in the 80s or the 90s, and it was addictive. It was building Rube Goldberg machines in order to solve problems, but it was very open. (laughs) I guess it was in the 90s. It was a lot of fun. Sounds like fun. The other notable thing for today was I didn't want to just do a death day. So happy birthday Mm. to psychologist Eleanor Gibson, who was born December 7th, 1910. Gibson is best known as being the person who came up with the study. She studied uh, primarily perception in infants. That's what she was most famous for. And she's the one who came up with that study where she took a piece of glass and hung it over a table ledge, basically, and put babies on top of it and had them crawl across the ledge coaxed by their parents. And many of the babies refused to do it. And that study helped show that infants have depth perception that informs their ability to stay out of danger. Also fun, fun baby test. (laughs) to do make your baby think you're trying to coax him over a dangerous ledge
1: yeah it's a trust thing you know (laughs) it's like uh abraham killing his son is that what it was (laughs) like (laughs) wow i didn't know just like that that. god said yeah slice open your son's throat you know And, Abraham's like, really? Like, just that? as Abraham yeah. was about to
2: do it, God's like, I guess babies don't have death perception. <laughs> Psych. <Yeah>.
1: Psych.
2: <laughs> what a bunch of
6: morons.
2: Here's a note.
1: <laughs> well, let's get right into a nice controversial topic this week, shall we? This study's been go- making the rounds and we got a lot of emails on this. New study looking at the brains of men and women showing that men and women's brains are wired differently. Most news reports just uh, report that straight up, you know, probably right from a press release. But this is actually a very complicated, nuanced, and interesting topic. I do have a little bit of an interest in the brain. Now, I do have to, pre- to preface this entire discussion uh, because we have talked in the past on the show about the fact that, you know, male-female is not a simple dichotomy. There are plenty of variations along the spectrum. But the this entire research looking at, you know, male-female sex differences – does treat it that way. Um, so essentially they're just looking at people who are unambiguously male unambiguously female and treating it as you know as two distinct groups. For the sake of efficiency in the discussion and the rest of our discussion on this topic, we're going to just talk about men and women. So what they looked at was they did an interesting uh, type of MRI scan using diffusion tensor imaging which essentially uh, models where water is moving in the brain to think of it that way. So essentially, it's a way of looking at the connectome, how neurons are connected to each other. It was a fairly robust study. They looked at uh, 949 individuals of different ages, 428 males, 521 females, and just looked at the overall pattern of connections in the male and female brains. And what they found was that on average, the male brains tended to be more connected on the same hemisphere than female brains, while female brains tended to be more connected between the two hemispheres. So there were these different overall pattern of connections, which is interesting. It, it does support a lot of other research, which shows that women generally have more interconnectedness between their two hemispheres. Like, for example, uh, studies looking at language shows that women tend to activate their two hemispheres much more when doing a language task than males who tend to only activate their dominant hemisphere for language. So this is not surprising in that it's in line with prior research. So that's the, I think, the uncontroversial part of this study. Although, you know, you always have to consider... Is the phenomenon real, right? Before you then go into what does the phenomenon mean? What does it tell us? You do have to ask, okay, well, how reliable are these results? Again, because it's in line with prior research, I think it's probably pretty reliable. The couple of things you always have to worry about when you're, when you're looking at male-female differences, men tend to be bigger than women and male brains tend to be bigger than female brains because j- just in proportion to body size. Sometimes studies will show, oh, look, this, this is bigger in men than women. But it's, unless you're adjusting for the fact that men on average are bigger than women, then that the result could be spurious. So some people have raised the question, okay, is, would that in any way bias the results of this kind of analysis? And I don't know what the answer to that question is. I don't think there's any obvious way that it would, but there, there's always, you know, in the the post publication review of the community, it's got to be picked apart on these Technical grounds, you know, is there any way that this data could be misleading, or it could be artifactual or they, it could be some uh, something else other than actual differences in the way brains are hardwired that that uh, they're seeing here? But nothing, ma- I haven't, I didn't come across any major criticisms that seriously call into question the results. You know, it still needs to be properly vetted, but let's assume that the results themselves are are reliable. So then the question is, of course, what does all this mean? And that's where. No one really knows the answer to that question. The one thing I find interesting in discussions of this, and this is pretty much every news article about this, refer to this as hardwiring. And I know I use that term a lot, but actually, um, and I've written about this before. When, when pressed, I think that the software hardware analogy doesn't really match the brain. The reason is, is that the brain is, there's no clean division between hardware and software. The hardware is the software. I think it's probably better just to call it wetware because it's different.
4: So, are you, Steve, are you saying that our our programming is cooked into the structure of our brain?
1: Well, okay. So, the programming is the connections. It is the structure. It's not like you have hardware, then you have software written to the hardware. The hardware is the software. And you add to that the fact of plasticity, that hardware you know, the connections change with use. That's what learning and memory is. That's what training is. Just experience. You know, and everything your brain experiences changes the connections, which is not analogous to a computer. You're not, you know, actually changing the the, your, your processor when you store information on your computer. So, you know, I just think that that analogy breaks down, and I think it does, the poor analogy does affect the way people think about studies like this, And makes them interpret it too simply or even just keep them from being able to discuss it in a meaningful way. Because then you get down to this this false dichotomy of, okay, so are these differences that we're seeing between male and female brains, assuming it's real, is this something that is determined by genetics and development? Or is this something that's determined by environment and experience? Because people are thinking hardware-software. It's like, well… But the brain is wetware. It's got to be both because, to some degree. And the, only, the the real question always is not whether it's A or B, nature, nurture, whatever. It's what's the proportion? What's the effect between the two? Because it's always going to be a combination. I mean, the brain developed, evolved to interact with the environment and to change. It, it, it's meant to be a plastic changing organ. That's the whole point. That's kind of the purpose of the brain. So you there isn't there isn't this clean divide. The way I think I you know I've come to understand it or think about it and trying to uh make sense of all of this kind of research is that we are born with and develop tendencies, um what psychologists might call the default mode of operation, but like a neuroscientist would call just a, a you know a predisposition or the sort of default wiring of the brain. But plasticity allows us to change it. Uh, so there's going to be statistical differences when you look at groups, you know, large numbers of groups of people. You're going to find statistical differences based upon whatever hormonal effects there are. We know that hormones affect brain development and affect brain function. There's going to be differences based upon genetics. But what's the magnitude of those group-based statistical differences versus the magnitude of the differences within groups? I reviewed the literature on sex differences uh in terms of like how early can we detect sex differences and what is what is the, the what are those studies showing. So like I know we've talked briefly on the show before about toy preference in infants. And that's that whole area of research is, is actually really fascinating. This is what I found. It's uncontroversial that there are male female differences in toy preferences. Um this goes down to before 6 months old. That boys and girls will look longer at, you know, girls will look longer at dolls, boys will look longer at trucks, and then that they, they actually have a preference for playing with those toys when they get old enough to actually interact with them, to actually play with them. It is not. There's no consensus. I really couldn't find anything that I would call a consensus on whether or not those differences are socially constructed or whether they're genetically, hormonally determined. And, and there's a, and there's reasons to think both. So in in uh, in terms of environmental influence there are certain things where there, there's actually no difference in color preference between boys and girls did you guys know that as infants yeah boys and girls equally they actually they all prefer blue over other colors regardless of, uh, of sex or gender and then as boys get older they lose their preference for things like pink um, they they actually then like almost develop an aversion to that. That's almost definitely socially constructed.
4: Ser- Wait seriously, like I I actually don't really like the color pink, and yeah. it, that's that was somehow taught to me
1: by my environment. Well, well you, it's hard to make an an individual statement based upon group data, right? Who knows what your individual history was or preferences were or whatever. But if you look at st- there's there's no statistical difference if you look at six to twelve month olds, but then by eighteen months boys start preferring blue to pink. If you look at toy preference, actually, yet less than 12 month old, less than 12 months old, boys and girls prefer dolls to trucks. But boys have more of a preference for trucks than girls do. And then after 12 months old, between like 18 months old, boys start losing their preference for dolls and they prefer trucks more. And um, it's also true that boys become more narrow in their toy, cho- toy cho- choice while girls remain more diverse. They'll play with anything. So it's interesting. That, so there's definitely – it does seem to be a cultural influence there because of the way it phases in as they age. But I,
2: also, I, I just want to mention really quickly before you move on that there's toy preference studies. Some of them are quite com- controversial, particularly I know – uh, they attempted to solve the is it culture problem. Some researchers, uh, studied toy preference in chimps, I believe it was, and found that male chimps preferred trucks and female chimps preferred dolls. And it was frankly ri- ridiculous because the chimp has no idea what a truck is. Uh, and, and so there was a lot of extrapolating, like, yeah. You know, well, male, male chimps like manly things like trucks, you know, uh, when the chimp has no idea of what a manly thing is and no idea what that toy truck represents, you know, so there's a, there's a lot of controversy surrounding the interpretation of a lot yeah. of those results.
3: Couldn't it be argued also that a child under 12 months is in the same position? They don't know what a truck is. Yeah. I would exactly. think that there might be a disposition though more towards dolls. Because of the facial features and how children you know from a very very young age are you know recognizing the facial features of their parents and the other people in their family
1: right, so that's that's true, so you can look at the, look at this a couple of ways. There are studies and I, I saw one with rhesus monkeys, but there but it's been repeated in several species of non human primates where the same type of toy truck preference seems to come out, and the researchers interpret that as well, yeah, they don't understand what a truck is but you know that the female rhesus monkeys prefer soft plushy things and the males prefer me- moving hard mechanical things even though they don't understand what a truck is. There's just still something very fundamental or basic about it that just is more attractive to them. So I don't think that completely dismisses that line of evidence. The other line of evidence that's very interesting, um, again, not to the point where it takes it out of the realm of being controversial, but if you look at girls who have uh, adrenal hyperplasia, so, there are, they are XX females, they mm-hmm. are completely females, but they have a problem that has nothing to do with their sex chromosomes or anything else, but that's just, it's an adrenal gland problem where they produce more androgens than a female otherwise would. And it's a range, you know, they could produce a little bit more or a lot more androgen. And, and studies have found that females raised and socialized as girls that have more androgen because of adrenal hyperplasia tend to have more of a male pattern of toy preference and play preference, you know, more rough and tumble, less touchy-feely. So it's all very complicated to do research into this kind of thing, but that's what the the research that exists so far is showing. So it does suggest that maybe, and again, I don't think it's surprising, to be honest with you, that a hormone like androgen would affect the functioning of the brain. We know that oxytocin could make you feel feelings of love. You know, there actually was a recent study where they gave oxytocin to, to children with autism and it helped them bond more. I mean, you know, it's a bonding hormone. It affects your brain function. So it's not surprising that men and women who have different proportions of hormones have, that, that, affects, that, that is affecting their brain function. So, but it's also, the research also shows that the differences within the groups, though, is greater than the difference between the groups. So, Variation within girls and within boys is actually greater than the statistical Mm -hmm. difference that you're looking at between boys and girls. So does that
3: have to do with the plasticity you mentioned before, Steve?
1: Well, I just, I I think it's a separate issue. So I mean, I think that it could relate to that to some degree, but I think even despite plasticity, it's just that it's like race, right? You're looking at looking at racial differences. You find more differences within an alleged racial group, and than there is between racial groups. It's the same kind of thing. So it just means that these these categories in terms of brain function anyway, are very fuzzy. And there aren't these rigid, strict, like this is a female brain, this is a male brain.
2: That to me, though, is the biggest issue with this study, or one of the biggest issues with this study is that it's it's being reported as these drastic differences between the brains of men and women. But the the study is actually, the participants of the study were a subset of a large study that pretty conclusively showed that the uh sex differences within the study were insignificant they were very difficult to tell uh who was a man who was a woman based upon what were supposed to be drastic sex differences
1: yeah, not, but not to say statistically insignificant. No, I mean small yeah, in magnitude in terms of their implication. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Yeah. So yeah, I agree. I agree. I think there's this is an area where we find statistical differences, especially when you look at like a thousand people and you look at large numbers of people of subjects. And we talked about this before. That, you know, how could you have something that's statistically significant that's not clinically significant or a quote-unquote overpowered study? I don't know if this study would qualify as being overpowered, but certainly it's powered to show very Slight differences to statistical significance. And then, but then, you know, the question is, well, yeah, but as you say, if you can't look at an individual and say, based upon this pattern, you, I can have a high predictive value that you are, you know, sort them into one of the two groups, male or female, then that tells you that the within group differences are greater than the between group differences. And then you add to that plasticity, you know, maybe we're talking about the, you know, an influence or, or a starting position, but plasticity, I think, is also greater than what these differences that we're looking at. So, and by plasticity, of course, that means the environment. So, for example, it may be that there's a slight, you know, increased inclination towards one way or the other, male or female, and you'll, you'll be able to tease that out of large data sets. But for an individual, what matters is your life experience, your environment, what you're encouraged to do, your training, whatever. Let me get, let me make another analogy and take it out of the sex difference area. Cause we talked before about research looking at chess masters. What the research showed is that anybody can get to the level of being a chess master. The real difference between different people, among different people, is how long it takes you to get there. Right. Some people might get there with 4,000 hours of playing chess, whereas other people might need 20,000 hours of playing chess. So that's the difference between nature and nurture right there. People may be born with different proclivities or talents or tendencies, but with enough, uh, environmental influence, training or practice in this case, you know, plasticity can overwhelm that. So whereas, you know, boys and girls may be starting in slightly different places that actually because You know, I think with the, while the research is showing, yeah, they probably are starting in different places. But it's also showing that those differences are pretty small compared to the plasticity, the power of plasticity to with boys and girls to end up wherever they want. All right. Well, we're going to move on. Bob, you're going to tell us this, this item <laughs> almost <laughs> seems like it was made up to be like just a Bob item. <laughs> wormhole entangled quantum effect. <laughs> it's like, let's throw in every oh. sort of weird cutting edge quantum if physics they missed, thing.
3: They missed nano. If they'd gotten yeah. that, it'd have been a grand slam.
1: Well, make sense of this fourth, Bob. Go ahead quickly.
5: Well, like, like oh, good luck with that. Um, <laughs> Uh, physicists have found a link between wormholes and quantum entanglement yes you heard me right rebecca they found in their model that if you entangle two black holes and separate them that a wormhole forms between them pause for impact oh sorry i wasn't supposed to read that uh this requires a little review though so uh for the wormhole and uh, entanglement impaired among us so quantum entanglement uh relatively briefly. It's one of those magical quote unquote aspects of quantum mechanics that I love that reveal the universe at its most bizarre and counterintuitive and uh, makes it just incredibly interesting in my opinion. So basically two quantum systems like quarks or atoms, uh, for example, born at the same time often share a- opposed qualities like spin. By their very nature, then one has to spin up and the other one has to spin down. But quantum mechanics, uh, tells us that each of them are essentially both at the same time, which is the principle of superposition, until they are measured, or more generally, until they decohere or have their wave function collapse by interacting with the environment, which is the key, the key thing there. So now imagine.
3: Does that include observation, Bob?
5: Well, that's what I mean by, by observation and by decoherence, by wave function collapse, it's interaction with the environment. Um, So you don't need a consciousness for these things to exist. Yes, the moon exists without you looking at it. So now imagine they, they speed away for a billion years without decohering and then you measure one and it says, hey, I'm spin up. If you could measure its partner billions of light years away at that instant, it would say the opposite. So how how did it know? uh you know though you can't send in real information faster than light using this method uh there there nonetheless appears to be some connection making any distance irrelevant and what einstein derisively called spooky action at a distance wormholes we've all heard about these or or einstein rosen bridges on the other hand they're more they're more of a of a of a staple of science fiction but they're on much less firm observational ground they have, they've never been seen, obviously, but there are valid solutions to general relativity equations that include wormholes. So we, we know what they are, right? They're bridges, you know, of sorts that may provide shortcuts through space time between black holes. So that's a little background on those two things. And this is what, uh, these scientists have been investigating. So these, these scientists have been studying entanglement for years. Now they imagined entangling two black holes. Now, this isn't impossible, although it may seem pretty weird how that could possibly happen. It is conceivable that two black holes could be created together, making them entangled. That's a possibility. Another way, is to apparently, is to have one black hole consume the radiation emitted by another black hole. And if you're shocked by that, just look up Hawking radiation. Now, the scientists then imagined pulling apart these two entangled black holes. And when they did this in their model a wormhole was created between the two black holes. Now, in other words, the space-time geometry of a wormhole is the same if you just entangled two black holes and pulled them apart. So that's the bottom line of that piece of the news item. How can we exploit this for intergalactic travel? <laughs> I don't know how to exploit that. It's just an interesting fact. But it, but it gets even cooler than that, if you can believe it. Um, this idea has been extended now from a black hole to subatomic particles, which is really interesting uh, angle for this scientists have shown previously that a valid way to represent two entangled quarks, for example are as two endpoints of some type of string in higher dimensional space so imagine imagine a piece of string in some higher dimensional space which you probably can't imagine and the endpoints would be those quarks now if you separate these two quarks this this string representation becomes mathematically indistinguishable from a wormhole so that means then, that if wormholes are entangled, uh, black holes, then perhaps entangled subatomic particles, like atoms or quarks, are connected by extremely tiny wormholes, uh, which uh. I think would, would I, which I think would be an incredibly fascinating discovery. Cause, cause a lot of this craziness with, uh, quantum mechanics is you just can't wrap your head around it. You can't create a mental image. So you're saying that that would explain the spooky action at a distance? that two entangled particles are connected by a wormhole? Possibly. That, that's one direction that, that this, that's one interpretation of this. You have to keep in mind the models that the physicists used to make these insights dealt with a simplified version of space time without gravity. So in this environment, you can't have black holes or wormholes if, there, if there's no gravity. So this may make any connections that they've uncovered just a mathematical analogy with no real physical analog. So that's, that's definitely possible and maybe it's even likely. Uh, so some physicists are saying that. But still, I do think that this is a, a fascinating area of research with some potential big payoffs. For example, if wormholes and entanglement are really connected, haha, uh, perhaps this will guide us to that holy grail of physics, the fusion of quantum mechanics, And general relativity, quantum gravity, that would be an amazing uh, end result if if this bears any fruit. It could also help us create quantum computers or make computer systems that are essentially unhackable. Uh, That would be fantastic. But even if none of that happens, it, it could still give us, as Karch says, a concrete realization of the idea that wormhole geometry and entanglement can be different manifestations of the same physical reality and that would be cool enough for me that would be amazing actually so anything that helps explain entanglement it would be most welcome this
4: is the kind of thing that that makes me think that someday we might be able to travel faster than light or go to another universe well it shouldn't well, <laughs> <laughs> why the hell not i mean you're talking about particles that are light years away from each other communicating, right? No, no, but yeah, they're but, not
1: communicating. You can't communicate. You can't violate the speed of light yeah. with entangled particles. There's something deeper going on, Jay. It's right. not that they're really communicating instantaneously across billions of light years. Right,
5: and that that's an important concept. There is some sort of connection that we can't wrap our heads around but you can never use it to to transmit information because it's random. You never mm-hmm. you'll never know what you're transmitting.
3: So they're pre-programmed at cre- at the point of creation and then they go on their way no matter where they go. They're always going to maintain that. That's
1: one way to look at it is that they're playing out some predetermined even though it seems like the waveform is, the wave function's random, but it's actually playing out something that must be pre-programmed in there. But when they interact too much with their environment they, they then lose their program right it puts it pushes right. them off of that predetermined path uh, that's one way to explain the appearance of entanglement perhaps right?
5: but but I like to look at it as when they're entangled they are they are one entity they're one thing and it just so happens that two pieces of them are separated it doesn't mean that they're still not this one thing as long as they're in this super superposition right but if we do come up with a nice a uh, neat explanation for entanglement. We
1: can't stuff that in Deepak Chopra's face.
5: Yeah, right. Huh. That's
1: the that's the big picture here.
5: Nice.
2: All
1: right, Rebecca, you're going to tell us about home genetic testing.
2: 23andMe is in the news right now. It's uh probably the most popular company of late offering personal genetic testing. For ninety nine dollars, you get a little kit and inside the kit is a tube. You spit in the tube and you send it back to 23andMe and they process it. (laughs) They Uh check out your DNA and they let you know interesting things about it, like information about your ancestry or genetic mutations that might influence your health in some way. It's that latter point that is under the microscope right now. The FDA has contacted 23andMe. They've published a letter stating that... 23andMe must cease marketing their tests because it is considered a medical device, which thereby falls under the FDA's regulations. The problem that the FDA claims is that 23andMe hasn't been working with them closely enough. Uh, they say that they had been in discussions, but 23andMe had dropped the ball and hadn't got back to them in several months. And so the FDA was pissed off about that <laughs> and asked them to stop marketing the kits. And on Monday, 23 this just this past Monday, 23andMe did comply with that order and have stopped marketing the kits, although they are still selling them online, I believe. The biggest concern the FDA seems to have is that consumers will use the tests and then take drastic actions based on the results. Like, for instance, uh, 23andMe tests the brca one and 2 genes, which we talked about previously uh, after Angelina Jolie uh, tested positive for a mutation on one of those genes, she had a double mastectomy to prevent herself from contracting breast cancer, uh, since that mutation drastically increases your chance of getting breast cancer. So they're concerned that if a patient, a patient, if a consumer gets, uh, word back that they have one of these mutations, they might go out and have a double mastectomy. Or maybe they could learn that they are at risk of blood clots, and so they may stop taking certain medications without consulting their doctor. Things like that. Uh, also, just the unnecessary worry that can come with false positives. And so the FDA thinks that 23andMe is misrepresenting their tests and overselling what customers can actually expect to know from what is at heart just a partial examination of their genome that may or may not be accurate, considering that there's no real oversight to guard against mistakes. There are are a lot of opinions about what's happening right now. It's actually, I find it all absolutely fascinating. And so for a lot of people, they're critical of for-profit personal genetics tests for the same reason the FDA is. There are also a lot of people kind of on the other side who are worried that the FDA is going to limit their freedom to evaluate their own DNA, something they feel belongs to them and that they should have the right to have access to if they want to pay for it. I fall into both groups, just to put that out there. But I do agree with the FDA in a couple of ways. Uh, if what they report is accurate, 23andMe has utterly failed to be proactive about maintaining a good working relationship with them, which is just ridiculous. And it's not something I expect from a company that I trust with this sort of information. Uh, also, I'd, I'd personally like for the FDA to maintain oversight of companies like 23andMe, if only to ensure that the results are going to be as accurate as possible. But where I start to disagree with the FDA's concern that they need to regulate these tests is this idea that people will, by default, take the information that's given to them and make rash, dangerous medical decisions because they don't understand genetics or probabilities. It's completely true that people can be stupid and foolhardy. Uh, We talk about that literally every week on this show. But I think that there's only so much companies can do to be sure something like this isn't being misused. And from what I've read uh, on 23andMe's website, they already make it very clear that they only test for certain mutations uh, and not even all of them when it comes to hot issues like the breast cancer stuff. Um, they make it very clear that they are only testing for something like two or three of the mutations that could lead to breast cancer. And they're upfront about the fact that your environment plays a huge role in your health and how your genes aren't your destiny. They make it really clear that any potentially negative results, any results at all, should be discussed with your doctor if you're at all concerned about them. So... I mean, in the end, the only way to stop stupid people from misusing 23andMe data is to stop companies from making that data available. And I don't personally think that's a good decision. Uh, the FDA isn't doing that yet. They're just demanding that the company not market the kits as a medical device. Yeah, I, I think I
1: disagree with you a little bit, Rebecca, in that um, we had a long discussion because I wrote about this on science-based medicine. The comments were pretty lively. And yeah, lots of people were like... Hell, this is information about me, about my genetics. The government should not be able to prevent me from getting information about myself, which I agree with. But uh, the point I made was that your right to information about yourself does not relieve the company of their responsibility of giving you that information in its proper context.
2: Well, and so- I don't think we disagree. That's actually exactly what I said. I think it goes beyond that.
1: So yes, yeah, sure, the disclaimer education that's fine, but you could argue that that could never go far enough. So the, this is also coming into the context of a, there's already a certain ethic that has developed around giving genetic information to patients. It's actually very tightly regulated. Just even for me as a physician and certainly as a researcher, there are certain ethics involved in giving patients information about their genetics. Um and one thing that you real that you can't do Uh, is give patients genetic information that hasn't been properly clinically vetted. So, like, if I'm doing a research project, I actually was involved in research that involved testing for genes in patients. I couldn't tell the subjects of those studies the results of their genetic tests because they haven't been properly validated in terms of their clinical implications. So the problem is that 23andMe is giving – this is one problem. This is where the FDA has a perfectly legitimate concern. It goes beyond accuracy. It's what are the clinical implications of this information. And if we don't know that, you can't put it in the proper context because we don't scientifically know what the proper context is. And the company is giving their, their clients the false impression of knowledge that we don't have. The other major problem is that, that one, as soon as you attach this to any clinical implications, then by definition, this becomes a medical screening test. And you, again, beyond just the, the simple notion of accuracy, then you have to ask, well, for, like, as with any screening test, what are the net effects of doing this test on the general population? and they can easily become a net negative even without people panicking you know and running out and cutting their breasts off or whatever i mean the just the fact that you can lead somebody to a false sense of security or you can lead them to be concerned about something that they would never have to be really concerned about and that could lead to unnecessary testing which then has its own p- potential downside. Medical misadventures can be triggered by the most innocuous piece of information.
4: But Steve, what are you proposing is different because I listened to everything Rebecca had to say and
1: I think for the most part you guys completely agree. Well, I think we are we are largely in agreement, but I do, you know when it comes to the bottom line is is should this company be allowed to give genetic information to people not in the context of a medical consultation? that's really the question sometimes it's very counterintuitively screening tests can have, can be a net negative we we're, We tend to think that all information is good and we should have the right for to as much information as we want but in medicine, everything is a risk versus benefit, and even more information may have more risk than benefit and so they shouldn't they should, they should at least they shouldn't make that health claim that that this is going to be useful to your health? Because we don't know that.
2: One thing to be slightly fair to 23andMe, um, and I don't think that this necessarily makes up for any claims that they have made in that regard, but they have published peer-reviewed research suggesting that, um, focused on the uh, BRCA1 and 2 genes, showing that patients who tested positive for that gene that were customers of 23andMe um, in their study, I think all but one said that they were happy to have that information. And of those who tested negative, uh, none of them reported any um, irresponsible actions like foregoing cancer screening and things like that. So I would like to see the FDA running studies on 23andMe consumers to see what effect it has. And I would like to see 23 Me working more closely with physicians because this is something that is going to hugely impact physicians. And honestly, whether 23 Me goes under or not, this is the future and physicians are yeah. going to have to deal with it. So, you know, yeah, I, I think right. if they can work with them to make this as easy as possible on them, I think everybody would benefit.
1: Yeah, I agree. The genie is probably out of that bottle. But it, it, we do have to think about all these issues rather than just assume. That's yeah. a good thing. Yep. Alright. Well, Evan, it's time to get us up to date on who's that noisy.
3: Thank you, Steve. We'll play for you right now. Last week's noisy. Here we go.
1: Even the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, agreeing
4: with most of the scientific community, says that it puts very little trust in any
1: attribution of hurricanes to global warming.
3: What do you think of that statement?
1: Trying to sow you know doubt into anthropogenic global warming. I would point out though that the consensus is not that global warming increases the number of hurricanes just, just their the severity when they do occur.
3: So if I were to tell you that was Bjorn Lomborg, would you uh, believe that?
5: Bjorn Lomborg, sure. the tennis yeah. player?
3: <laughs> yes, that's right. All those Jimmy Connors matches and John McEnroe, yes. No, Bjorn Bjorn Lomborg, a uh, Danish author, academic and writer. Perhaps he is best known for his best-selling and controversial book the Skeptical environmentalists, which came out in 2001. Yes. Which critics and his peers pretty much tore to pieces, I think. Yes, yeah, Scientific
1: <laughs> yeah. American decided to de- dedicate an issue to ripping apart every claim in the book.
3: Yeah. There's a Danish Committees on Scientific Dishonesty. And because they got numerous complaints about his work, they they actually did an investigation into it. They The charges claim that the uh, book contained deliberately misleading data and flawed conclusions. <laughs> the conclusion of the committee uh, was such that they calling it kind of a mixed message. They decided the book was... Scientifically dishonest, but Lomborg himself not guilty because of a lack of expertise in the fields that yeah, he's, he Yeah, he he's an economist, right? He was yeah, about that's right. environmental issues. I think his position has softened since those years. Yeah, I was going to say, I those think years.
1: He, he moderated a little bit, yeah.
3: So several correct answers for that one. Uh, but this week's winner is uh, Ewan Compton. He guessed correctly. That was Bjorn Lomborg. Well done, Ewan. Your name goes into the drawing, which is coming up in a couple weeks, in which we're going to have a grand prize winner for from the year of all the correct uh, Who's That Noisy guesses, and they're going to be joining us on the show uh, in early 2014 for an episode of Science or Fiction. So, well done, Ewan. And this week? Moving on, for this week we have yet another noisy. <laughs>
1: All right. Thanks, Evan.
3: WTN at theskepticsguide.org is the official email address for who's that noisy submissions or go on to our forums at sguforums.com. If you don't have an account there, go ahead and create one. Join the community. Give us your guess. Good luck, everyone.
1: All right, guys, let's take a quick break from our show to talk about this week's sponsor, Squarespace.
4: Yeah, Squarespace is an awesome all-in-one platform that makes it fast and really easy to create your own professional websites like an online portfolio or a store if you're selling things. You can start a free trial, 10% off. Go to squarespace.com and use the offer code SGU12.
2: Yeah, and you can start with their highly customizable templates With all the style options you need to create a unique website for you or your business, just drag and drop to add content for your desktop and even rearrange elements of content within a page.
5: It's really incredibly easy to use. and But if you want some help, Squarespace has an amazing support team that works 24 hours a day, seven days a week, except for two minutes on Friday.
3: What can you sell with Squarespace? Anything from digital and physical goods to services and donations. Squarespace takes care of your tax and shipping options by region.
1: Yeah, I've been playing around with it a lot, you know, developing websites, and it really is easy. You know, the templates are great, and and you could customize them pretty much any way you want. Um so you can get started with a free trial, just use SGU12 offer code at squarespace.com. It's only $8 a month, which includes a free domain name if you sign up for a year. Um you can start your trial without a without a credit card and we'd like to thank Squarespace for being supporters of The Skeptic's Guide.
3: Thank you Squarespace. Well guys, let's
1: get back to our show. Joining us now are Tim Farley and Susan Gerbick. Tim and Susan, welcome to The Skeptic's Guide. Thanks
7: for having us. Hello.
1: And for those who don't know, Tim Farley is a research fellow for the James Randi Educational Foundation, the creator of the website whatstheharm.net, which we mention all the time on the show, um, and also blogs about internet techniques for skeptics at skeptools.com. And Susan Gerbick is the co-founder of the Monterey County Skeptics, a member of the Independent Investigations Group and the founder of Guerrilla Skepticism on Wikipedia and the World Wikipedia Project, which is what you two are here to talk about tonight. So, Susan, why don't you give us uh, an encapsulation? What is
6: Guerrilla Skepticism on Wikipedia? Well, Guerrilla Skepticism on Wikipedia is a little over two years um, old. Um, I started it because Tim said it was a great idea. Wikipedia is the source of all knowledge. And uh, we decided that uh, we need to improve skeptic pages, create pages, um, create skeptical content, because it's very important that the world is able to get great, great knowledge. So we've been you know, working on this in many different languages for a little over two years. And so now I have a forum that uh, we can discuss all the page edits, we can train, we can create videos, we can create commercials for podcasts, we can create podcasts. Um, it's a little world, little empire that we have that I'm always looking for new recruits, especially people who can speak and read and write in other languages.
1: So why, why does it take so much effort to edit Wikipedia? I mean, back in the day, you could just sign on there and start editing away. That's not the case anymore, huh?
6: Oh, no, you can easily do that. But what we want to do is we want to make, we want to train, um, we want to make sure that people are editing correctly. There's a lot of rules and um, they call it biting. You know, some of the older editors might bite some of the newer editors who come in and try to make changes. So we really want to uh, coddle I guess, our editors for a little bit, make sure that they know what they're doing, um, understand the process so we can follow the rules, as well as maybe put more focus on things that need to be done. We're, we're very critical about how we edit pages. We, we um, When we roll out a page, it has seen many, many eyes uh, <laughs> before we release it to to Wikipedia.
7: Yeah, what, what I've seen in the past when I've Pushed Wikipedia on skeptic forums and stuff. Is I I occasionally get skeptics who are oh I I tried to do that once and uh, and and they took the edit I put in and out immediately. And, and what's happened over the years is if you remember from the early days of Wikipedia when it first started, they were desperate for material and it was super easy to add stuff because they wanted to get it you know articles written as quickly as possible. But as the things grown up and attack and attracted attention, they have to be more careful about what gets added. It and what what gets, you know, left in and what gets taken out. And so all these various rules have come up about reliable sources and uh, secondary sources and things like that. And they tend to bite you if you don't take a little bit of time to learn the rules and and go slow at first. And I found a lot of skeptics jump in there with both feet and then, you know, get their fingers burned, so to speak. And, uh, and then they, yeah. and then they say, oh, Wikipedia is not interested in it. And it, it couldn't be further from the truth. If you actually, you know, take the time to learn the rules. It can be, you can be very, very productive on Wikipedia and the, and the rules are actually pro skeptic. They're Mm -hmm. oriented towards scientific evidence and uh, scientific consensus and there are rules against putting in fringe crackpot theories and stuff gets taken out all the time because there's no evidence for it. So.
1: So they have some standard of scholarship now to back up the Mm -hmm. edits. And when you say that you might, like the, the old editors might bite you, you mean that they'll just remove the work that you did.
6: Or they'll slap you down with some snarky comment that makes you not want to edit Wikipedia because they're, you know, they, they use a lot of jargon and it takes a little bit of time to learn the jargon even though they're constantly giving you the the links to what the jargon means it's 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 like a different world it's um it's not difficult to edit wikipedia i mean the links and it's not like learning a whole new computer language or anything like that it's not difficult it's just a culture and yeah it, it can be kind of overwhelming to people at first so i coddle them like i said we we really really We practice, we start with spelling errors, we start with grammar, we start with adding periods, taking periods out, removing citations, putting in small things, and then everything's done in our user space, offline, where it's not seen by the general public. And we look it over and look it over, and people critique it, and we look it over again, and then when it's finally released, it should be done in, well, good quality and good scholarship. So do you use that as
4: a way to get your name recognized by uh, the other editors so they don't jump on you in the beginning you're just making the minor tweaks to get like a level of familiarity
6: well sort of you really need to build a history and you don't want to just jump in and just start editing because that's a little suspicious it kind of sounds like you've you're you're coming in with an agenda so we do ask that you start with a history of small edits—it it, it does look good because it looks like you're trying to improve Wikipedia overall and not just some specific person's page.
7: Yeah, and that exact thing has happened on in the recent unpleasantness, uh, where people have come in and suddenly started full speed editing one article, uh, and you—it's it, always a red flag when somebody comes in and they're just editing this one article repeatedly and over and over and over. Uh, the other people on Wikipedia are wondering, well, are you more – are you interested in Wikipedia at all or are you just interested in this one article?
1: What if you have an expert who has a very narrow area of expertise and that's the one article that they're looking to update? In-
7: I mean they don't – it's not immediately – you know, they don't immediately slap you down. If you're putting in the footnotes and following the rules and, you know, documenting your work, you'll be fine. But it, it is something that sort of sets you aside. So one of the things I always tell – and and uh, Susan tells her people and I tell people is if a skeptic wants to get involved, don't just edit skeptic stuff. Try to find some other things that you're interested in, you know, Star Trek or nanotechnology. I do a lot of stuff about buildings and historic stuff here in Atlanta. Good choices. Mm -hmm. Um, So, like, there's a historic building that's used as a concert venue, and I wrote a whole big, long history of the building because it's a 100-year-old building and uh, wrote that for Wikipedia. And it helps build up your history, and people see that you're interested in Wikipedia and not just trying to push an agenda.
1: But it is still true that anybody can sign up to be an editor and start editing. Yep. It's just that it'll be hard unless you know the culture and you build this history. Right. So for the skeptics out there who want to make the world a better place by, you know, adding their edits to Wikipedia, um, is there a primer or some place they could go where they could get a one-page sort of, all right, this is what you got to know if you want to be a Wikipedia editor?
7: There's a couple places. I've got some blog posts on my site at skeptools.com. There's a Wikipedia link right at the top of the page. If you go in there, there's a whole bunch of articles I've written, and there's a couple of uh kind of starting up here's how you set up your account here's how you do simple edits like uh, spelling changes and and reverting vandalism and then susan has taken it a lot deeper and she's done a bunch of videos on youtube Mm -hmm. uh with uh much deeper stuff about how to do different types of edits and what they're doing with the gorilla skeptics
1: now this all came up. The reason why you know we're getting you guys on the show now is because of uh, Rupert Sheldrake and Deepak Chopra have been complaining about you guys. Yeah, <laughs> they're they're trying to portray you as skeptical vandals going in and you know spreading your skepticism through Wikipedia.
7: Mm-hmm. It's very interesting. I, you know, I've I've actually spent some time going back through the blog posts and going back through the histories of the articles on Wikipedia, and uh, all their posts about it are amazingly evidence free. Uh, mm-hmm. which is uh which is uh striking with wikipedia because wikipedia is very very open the history of every article is there you can see every single edit to every single article all the way back you can see every edit that individual editors have made you can see the hit counts on articles so you know which articles are popular and which ones aren't you can see all the discussions all the way back to trivial discussions that were you know had 6 years ago about Editing two words in a sentence They're all there So there's plenty of information About who's editing it And when they're editing it And why they're editing it And none of these posts by Sheldrake or Deepak Have dug into any of that And yet they somehow latched on to Susan And uh, basically it all boils down to a blog post uh, Way back in March uh, By Robert McLuhan He's a uh, spiritualist, psi type person who's written a book about uh, the million-dollar challenge that's apparently very critical of Randy. He blogged about Susan's project, and it wasn't a especially angry blog, but he pointed out some things in uh, Wikipedia that he didn't like and said some things about, well, maybe we should be, we, the Psy believers, should be getting our own group together. And it was there that Sheldrake picked it up. Sheldrake mentions McLuhan in his first blog post, which was in, which was on June 20th. And actually this afternoon, I went back and looked at the history of Sheldrake's article. And until McLuhan and Sheldrake and later Deepak Chopra were blogging about it, Sheldrake's article actually wasn't being edited that much at all. Mm-hmm. Uh, in fact, in February of this year, no one edited it at all that entire month. And uh, all the way back to June 2012, it typically would get like five edits a month, six edits a month, three edits a month. You know, very typical for a, a lesser article like that. And then all of a sudden after Robert McLuhan's post, in April it's getting 21 edits and then uh, 26 and in June it shot up. And uh and it accelerated from there and uh, a large number of editors were editing the article. And what was what was happening from what I can tell is people were stepping on each other's toes and getting in each other's way and there were a lot of clearly very new editors to Wikipedia jumping in, I presume as a result of these blog posts and trying to edit and there was one editor in particular in June who made most of the edits in June who had a weird random string for their name on Wikipedia and eventually getting, got blocked and was accused of being a, a sock puppet and in uh, uh, August and September was blocked off of Wikipedia because their edits they were making were not productive. Um, and that was kind of the start of it. And uh, there, it's gone on from there. There was another um, editor by the name of Tumbleman, who uh, came in around August, and he had a post on his own uh, kind of profile page on Wikipedia that somebody dug up that basically said he was doing an experiment in social psychology by editing the Rupert Sheldrake page and seeing how people reacted. Essentially, he admitted he was trolling the other editors on that page, and people accused him of it, and he deleted that from his user page, and he, he created all sorts of havoc on the page. And, um, that, that brought in another blogger by the name of Craig Wheeler, who's blogged about it a few times. And that's how it got to Deepak Chopra, I think, because Deepak Chopra mentioned Craig Wheeler's blog. But neither one, neither Tumbleman nor Craig Wheeler made that many constructive edits in fact i was laughing with susan earlier because i found a blog post that craig wheeler made where he referred to sheldrake's article as my article on wikipedia which is something you never do you never you know assume ownership of a wikipedia article um -hmm. he's made one edit to the sheldrake article one (laughs) over the entire time and that one edit was he deleted something a foot and that's yeah. it that's it and he and yet in his blog you if you read his blog you would think he was making these gigantic edits that the skeptics were removing every day he wasn't he's he's been arguing with people on Wikipedia he's only yeah. made about 60 edits and then he finally gave up he he posted a thing on his blog that the only way to win the Wikipedia game is to not play and yeah uh, well good good riddance right, <laughs> right mean, exactly it, it sounds like they can't get their shit together <laughs> mm-hmm. no um,
1: the, and they're just complaining because you guys do have your shit together, and you're you're actually making constructive, evidence-based, scholarly edits. Right. And they just they just don't like what the scholarship has to say. Yeah. Let's talk about Wikipedia in general for a bit because it's it, you know, Wikipedia has an interesting reputation. It's all over the place. I mean, if you do research on almost anything, you know, any basic topic, Wikipedia comes up on the first page, if not the first hit, right. for most things. Um, and yet. You know, teachers, for example, usually do not allow students to reference Wikipedia. I mean, for no other reason because it's by definition a secondary source. So it sort of has a bad reputation among scholars and yet it's emerging as – it's the closest thing to the one reservoir of human knowledge that we have. Mm-hmm. So it's, yeah, it's kind of in this strange place. Um, in terms of its, its, you know, its reputation as a source of information.
6: Right. And, you know, Steve, it's a great point. We we hear a lot about how bad Wikipedia is, but it is the source of all knowledge. You can't beat its Google uh, hits. There's there's abs- the results. There's no way that anybody can write a blog, do a podcast, or anything of that sort that's going to get the, the hit views that um, a Wikipedia page receives. In fact, just take one, for example, homeopathy the most popular blogger out there can do an article on Wikipedia on uh, homeopathy, uh, write, you know, great evidence, uh, cite great sources, and they're not even going to get close to the hundred thousand views a month, every month for years that Wikipedia is going to get. And, you know, this, this, this BS about not being able to cite it on um, scholarly, scholarly, you know, for articles and things like that. That's nice. I hear that all the time. People are always talking about, you can't cite, You know, Wikipedia, but everyone goes to Wikipedia, right?
3: Yeah, it's, it's,
6: you know, so they can frail their arms and they can fling their arms about and, and, you know, wave their hands and so on about how bad Wikipedia is. But it is where everyone is going. And there are great sources on a lot of pages that people can find when they go to familiarize themselves with a topic, to get a general overview of a historical piece or one of our scientists or global warming, and then follow the the uh, citations to get really good information and then cite those. So, yeah. you know,
7: that's that's the key that I think a lot of uh, educational people who have a more nuanced view of Wikipedia always emphasize is you know skim the article maybe use the article as a starting point but the one of the first things you're going to do is go down to the bottom of the article and look at the footnotes and for a good a well-written article Um, there will be exhaustive footnotes down there and where those footnotes lead are the sources that you're probably going to want to really be reading after you've got, you know, sort of your uh, cliff notes view from the article itself. And, and, and it varies from article to article. You know, a a lot of articles are very poor and have uh, just a couple of footnotes and not very good sources. And there are other articles that have hundreds and hundreds of footnotes down there to very scholarly sources and will really send you exactly where you need to be it does seem like it's
1: it's this is a place where it's worthwhile for us as a community to put our efforts because it's this is the show this is the resource that people go to you know
7: and one of the big things that Susan has focused on and I have focused on myself mainly just to kind of stay out of a lot of these controversies like Sheldrake and Chopra is not necessarily diving into the controversial pseudoscience articles, but editing the articles on the other side that just document the skeptic movement. So writing biographies, uh, for instance, I wrote George Rab's biography on Wikipedia. I wrote Harriet Hall's. I wrote uh, most of uh, Karen Stolzno's bio. Uh, and, you know, it's just a matter of finding someone like that who you, who clearly Harriet Hall is notable enough to be in Wikipedia, and she didn't happen to have an article. So I just sat down and started digging up references of stuff that she's written and stuff that she's done and, and wrote it up and put it in there. And it help, helps document skepticism for the general public. Uh, you know, when somebody sees an article by Harriet Hall and they go, well, who is this Harriet Hall person? They Google her name. There's a whole bio of her on Wikipedia.
6: We specialize in that. We call this. We call that project. We got your wiki back, and we've done that time and time again with our um, in our forum. What we're trying to do is we're really trying to improve the pages of our skeptical spokespeople, and that includes you know the SGU as well as uh, many other um, skeptical organizations and spokespeople. Because what we want is when you are in the media. We know that you're going to get Googled. We know that you're going to get uh, high stats because we can see that. We have a way of looking at your stats and see how many hits come to your come to your Wikipedia page each day. And we can look at that and we can say, well, so-and-so is in the news, so we got to make sure that their page is in really good shape and we need to make sure that the links are going from there to – to uh, scientific skepticism, to the different organizations, to the different um, different kinds of things we have. And it needs to be done in all languages. In fact, we've written the SGU page, I believe in other, I think we just did Portuguese just recently, not so long ago. So, um, you know, we have to have the pages done in English, really great. And then they get translated into other languages from different people on my team. Wow. That is awesome. That's, that's fantastic. All right. So, guys,
1: um, you're going to provide me with some links for anyone listening to the show who wants to get involved as a wiki editor or directly with you guys in the Guerrilla Skepticism Project. Yep. All right, guys. Well, thanks for joining us tonight, and uh, thanks for all the good work. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Before we go on to science or fiction, we're going to take one last quick break for our sponsor.
0: Your business depends on software. All your apps, your databases, your social media, your account management, your e-commerce. Everything you do in business relies on software. So the very last thing you need is a problem with it. New Relics Software Analytics give you powerful, real-time insights into your software so you can spot problems and fix them before they become big business-stopping problems. Plus, you got web and mobile apps, right? Of course you do. You can't be in business today without a strong presence online. So let me ask you, do you have any clue how they're performing? With New Relic, you can stop wondering and start knowing how your apps are performing because New Relic gives you full code-level visibility into their real-time performance. Give New Relic a try free for 30 days. Go to newrelic.com radio. That's N-E-W-R-E-L-I-C dot com slash radio. Newrelic.com dot com slash radio. It's time for Science or Fiction.
1: Each week, I come up with three science news items or facts, two genuine and one fictitious, and I challenge my panel of skeptics to tell me which one is the fake. We have a theme this week. The theme is how many, and we have four (laughs) items. How many? (laughs) Oh. There are four items. Okay, here they are. The human body has more than 12 distinct types of of sensation without dividing taste, smell, vision, or hearing into subtypes. Item number two. There are six known moons of Pluto, five named, and 83 confirmed moons of Jupiter. Item number three, there are 11 known states of matter, not counting non-classical states or purely theoretical states. And item number four, there are currently six people in space. So obviously, this is all about the numbers. One of those numbers is incorrect.
4: Uh, I'm not a fan of this. Jay, go first. <laughs> Okay, so this first one, uh, I do believe that there are, are other types of sensations other than the five obvious senses that we have. Um, and I'm not dipping into uh, sense hunger or any of that nonsense that L. Ron Hubbard wants us to believe. Um, and the second one here, that there are six known moons of Pluto. Oh, wow. I just I don't even know if Pluto has any moons. That's how bad this one is. Uh, you know, you, you you're supposed to know stuff like that, Bob, and I'm supposed to know about yelling and and bad accents and Thanksgiving. <laughs> and, uh, thank you, yeah. yeah and where was my go. Thanksgiving science or fiction, Steve? <laughs> really, really, <laughs> it's true. You, you did me wrong, son. That I'm I'm not sure about the Pluto one, and I just hate having to admit to myself that I don't know more information about that. And the the final one that there are eleven known states of matter. Damn you. I believe there are six people in space right now, so that's the fourth one. I'm going to say that's science. and Between two and three, I'm going to say that there are not 11 states of matter.
1: Okay.
3: Evan? Um, for the 12 distinct types of sensation in the human body, that really doesn't uh, make sense to me. Certainly not what we're taught in school, but that doesn't mean a damn thing these days. I'm having a problem with this one. Distinct types. I don't know that they're distinct. A lot of things are connected. Uh Six known moons of Pluto. Five named. Eighty-three confirmed moons of Jupiter. That's a lot. I well, always we thought Jupiter was kind of in the 40s or 50s, but, you know, they were always finding new moons. I would not be surprised. Eleven known states of matter. Well, sure, I'm tending to think that that one is correct You know, please don't ask me to name them because I couldn't get all 11, I think, in under the worst of circumstances. And then this, this last one, there are currently six people in space. You know, there, what can you say about that? There either is or there isn't. And you kind of just have to take a guess with that one. So it's coming down to the six people in space or 12 distinct types of sensation. Given those two options that I've narrowed it down to, I'm going to have to say, that the twelve distinct types of sensation, I'll say, is the fiction.
1: Okay, Rebecca.
2: Oh man, that was the one that I I thought was science because uh, I I don't know about twelve, but I know that there are other senses like um, sense of balance. I know is one uh, that people don't ordinarily think of, and there must be more. Like I feel like psychologists are always coming up with new. <laughs> senses like like what about the sense that you're like an individual you know there there are people who have brain damage who who lose certain senses about themselves and and it's really freaky so so i don't know i i feel like that one could be true six known moons of pluto 83 moons of jupiter no idea honestly i have no idea 11 known states of matter i mean i know the solid liquid, gas, plasma. That's four. What else could there be? I don't know. (laughs) Do Newtonian liquids? Is that a, I don't think so. I don't, there's probably, I'm sure that there must be some other crazy states of matter that I don't know about, but I don't know. And I have no idea how many people are in space at any one time. How do we even define space? We we can't, Steve. <laughs> <laughs> Somebody just went into space and came back just now while I was answering this question. So I don't I don't know. I don't know. I guess I'm going to go with the states of matter one because I feel like 11 is too many states of matter, but I'm probably way wrong. Okay, Bob.
5: Yeah, this is tough. These these numbers are good. They're just outside of the range that I'm comfortable in. Yeah, for distinct sensations, I kind of like what Evan was saying about how uh, 12 distinct ones definitely seems high. Uh, A lot of them are just kind of fusion of different sensations. Uh, The moons of Pluto, I wasn't aware of the sixth one. And 83 for Jupiter, uh, yeah, I just lost count. And that seems a little high, but not that high. The The 11 known states of matter... That seems high as well. I mean, there, yeah, there's a, but there's a bunch of them besides the obvious plasma, Bose-Einstein condensate. There's these quasi-crystals.
3: You know, <laughs> of of, course, part of, the of course, Bob knows <laughs>
5: Quart, gluon. Plasma. You know the obvious ones, the Bose-Einstein yeah. crystal. You know, was, no, no, he was know. reading
3: a paper on that earlier. No,
5: today. I, I said beside the obvious solid, liquid. Gas. Oh, okay. Um so, but I, even, <laughs> but, but even for those, I remember thinking, that's it. I've just sufficiently lost track of how many states of matter there are. There are just all these obscure ones. Some of them are fascinating. Other ones were kind of not as fascinating, but that still seems high to me. And, um, people in space, I really don't know. Six sounds, sounds reasonable. And part of me is thinking that that's such a simple little thing. So there's six people in space and that's going to be the fiction and nobody's going to pick it. <laughs> Jay, what did you pick? I, I said that the uh, the 11 known states of matter. Screw it. I'm going with the six people in space.
3: Right, Bob. Good <laughs> for okay. you.
5: All right. So the one that you all agree
1: on is that there are six known moons of Pluto, five named, and 83 sure. confirmed moons of Jupiter. You all
5: think that is science. Gosh. Wait, can I yeah. change my mind? <laughs> no. <kidding>. No. <laughs> no, I know, I know. And that
1: one is the fiction. Yeah, of course it is. Excuse me, ah. <laughs> Steve. Because... There are five moons of
3: Pluto, Bob. Right, not come discovered. Six.
1: Those moons are. On, you should know how many moons
3: Pluto there has. There are no moons. Why? In Pluto. Charon. I should I oh my that. God, we talked about it. Nix and the other yeah, one. Yeah, Nix. Was and how just just Why do I ever this. need to Charon, know about that? Charon, Styx,
1: Nix, Kerberos, and Hydra.
3: Kerberos, right?
1: And Jupiter has sixty-seven confirmed moons.
3: Not There's a great. lot of
4: people listening to this show right now that were in the uh, same exact shoes as I was. In. Admit it, people. I was a right lot about of you Jupiter. There was no – nobody knew that there were any moons of Jupiter. There were no moons of Jupiter before the recording of this program. Jupiter?
3: You mean Pluto? Whatever. <laughs> Same deal.
1: Jupiter has 67 moons. All right. Let's go back over the other ones in order. The human oh, body right. has more than 12 distinct types of sensation without dividing taste, smell, vision, or hearing. That is science. I had to say more than 12 because there's just no way to give one number. Um, it depends on how you divide them or count them. I didn't – I – Said like not dividing taste, cause do you count bitter, you know, salt and sweet as three sensations or one? Is no, color you, and crazy? black and white vision could be more than one. Every smell, how many re- different types of receptors do we have for smell? So I said, all right, just forget those. We'll keep those as just one type of sensation. But in addition to sight, smell, sound and taste, we have temperature, pain, proprioception, soft touch, pressure, vibration, vestibular sensation, itch and stretch. Like, you know, when your bladder's full or if your bowel is distended. Isn't it just a form of pain? That's 13. Nope, there's a distinct receptor for it. That's um, 13. I got over 12, so I just had more than 12. There's (laughs) more, whatever.
4: I knew it. I was right. Thank you.
1: Bastard. Yeah, they actually discovered that there's, I mean, and they're distinct. They have distinct receptors, pathways. I mean, I got
4: one that you did not think of. Detect fart. Detect fart? No, because you know the difference. (laughs) I believe that's pressure. (laughs) Yeah, go back and think no, that's about a combination
1: of, of stretch and odor.
4: You know, you know <laughs> that it, there's a difference. You don't, you know whether you have to go to the bathroom or you have to fart, or else we'd all be shitting our pants. <laughs> well,
2: hopefully you do. we we'll
1: call that the not not So yeah, when is, people, no, I've named it Detect Fart. Thank you. <laughs> is that a uh, Scientology power? <laughs> yeah.
3: Right. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> so, yeah. Right. All right.
1: There are 11 power. known states of matter, not counting non-classical states and purely theoretical states. So. I had to throw that caveat in there because there's all sorts of possible states of matter and I'm sure somebody could, you know, come in and say, no, there's only 11. There's only 10 or there's 12 or whatever. But here are the 11, you know, I tried to – got to draw the line somewhere between how much confirmation is enough to say it's, you know, we know that it right. exists. But here's the, are right. the 11 I thought were above the board. Solid liquid gas plasma, you all know about that, superfluid. Mm-hmm. Bose-Einstein oh, yeah. yeah. condensate, fermionic condensate, Rydberg molecule, photonic matter, degenerate matter and quark-gluon plasma.
5: What de- about oh, a quasicrystal?
1: Those are non-classical states. What about dark okay. matter? Dark matter is purely theoretical. Ah. Uh, what? Wait a minute. What do you mean purely theoretical? We don't know what it is. It's what just de- theorized that it must exist. But we know exist. it exists. There there was like 10 other ones that that <laughs> probably that theoretically should exist we just we don't we have no idea what it is. I didn't count those. That's awesome. Read those again.
2: But the list could be a lot more. Oh, I mean, there's a lot That's more things excited. potentially Go on the list. Google it and read it yourself. Solid, <laughs> liquid, God. gas,
1: plasma, superfluid, Bose-Einstein condensate, fermionic condensate, Rydberg molecule, photonic matter, which we talked about recently, degenerate matter, like in a neutron star, and yeah. oh. quark-gluon plasma. Quark-gluon plasma is Mark. on the fence about because – Why? Well, because it, how confirmed is it? We, we've we definitely detected well, it in, in, in uh, particle accelerators, but – It's not 100 percent, 100 percent confirmed, but I thought it was above the bar. Yeah, Yeah, it is. is.
2: I think my cat is a new state of matter because (laughs) he's soft and squishy. I can touch him, but he also seems – so that's like a solid, but he also seems to fill any space like a gas. So like (laughs) a very tiny box or a very large box, he can fill it perfectly.
1: And Rebecca, that's another sense. Detect cat. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yes. And there are currently six people in space. They are. Oleg Kotov, Mike Hopkins, and Sergey Ryanansky. They've uh-huh. all been in space for 70 days. Rick Mastracchio, Mikhail Tyrin, and Koichi Wakata have been in space for 28 days. Hey, Koichi. So, how,
4: so how
5: many hey, people are in space? Hey, he listens to the, the show.
1: So there's two Americans, three Russians, and a, uh, yeah, and one Japanese.
5: Hey, I heard Koichi went home, so I think I win. What do you mean? How could he
1: have gone home?
5: <laughs> he was homesick. Tired of it. Yeah, his parents pick <laughs> him up. Man,
1: no, no, no he there's just there's, there's a website. There's a website called How Many People
3: Are in Space Right dot com. Really? <laughs>
5: oh, no, awesome. Awesome. Yeah, that's great. What is it?
3: Just one big number six on the screen? <laughs> what yes, exactly. Uh, there's a picture of the Earth. There's a big number six
5: on the screen. And then b- below that are the names. But yes, that's <laughs> wow. It. That is awesome. What's the highest that number's ever been, I wonder? I don't
7: know.
3: Oh, gosh. Know. Is a there a thing.
2: website, What's the Most People Who Have Ever Been in Space.com? <laughs> we
5: Space. need to make one, yeah. Did you say Rydberg atom? Molecule. How did they – so they classify that as a, as a separate state of matter? Rydberg molecule. They did, yeah. That's interesting. Okay. Because isn't that where the molecule is – the electron is so far away that it actually exhibits classical and and quantum uh, characteristics? I believe so, yes. I could read the description for you. Hey, Steve. I have an awesome quote. Jay, do you have a
4: quote for us this week? This is a quote sent in by Yadio Sotomayor. And he is a philosophy student, and he read this during his final exam, and I just absolutely love this quote. It's a quote uh, by John Stuart Mill, and it reads – The real advantage which truth has consists in this that when an opinion is true, it may be extinguished once, twice, or many times, but in the course of ages there will generally be found persons to rediscover it until some one of its reappearances falls on a time when from favorable circumstances it escapes persecution until it has made such head as to withstand all subsequent attempts to suppress it.
1: John Stuart Mill! Truth
4: wins out in the end. I I kind of read that like like truth is woven into the fabric of space-time in a way where it's inevitable that it'll be discovered and and found out. It's one of the states of matter. Or one
1: of the moons of Jupiter. (laughs) (laughs) It hasn't been named yet, though. (laughs) Steve. (laughs) Hey, don't forget there's still time to get your SGU swag and gift memberships. Just stop by our membership page or the store page on the SGU website This week we have a really interesting premium content. We have a long discussion of the proposed thorium generator, which proponents say should be small enough to power a thorium car, a car that could last for a 100 years on just 8 grams of fuel. Uh, So we'll we'll dive into that, and you can listen to all of our premium content if you become an SGU member at the Damned Dirty Ape level or higher. Well, guys, thanks for joining me this week. Thank, Thank Steve. you, Steve. Sure, Steve. And until next week, this is your Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe is produced by SGU Productions, dedicated to promoting science and critical thinking. For more information on this and other episodes, please visit our website at theskepticsguide.org, where you will find the show notes as well as links to our blogs, videos, online forum, and other content. You can send us feedback or questions to info at skepticsguide.org. Also, please consider supporting the SGU by visiting the store page on our website, where you will find merchandise, premium content, and subscription information. Our listeners are what make SGU possible.